Khalid, and this is the Unlearning Podcast, the show where we hear stories and interviews with myself and guests that reveal rules, beliefs, and behaviors that are actively or have in the past prevented us from moving closer to living our most authentic and liberated lives. At the Unlearning, there really is no topic too silly or too serious for us to examine together. So join us each episode as we pull up the hood on why it is we do what we do and the areas in our lives that could benefit from an unlearning. episode finds you well wherever you are whether you're on a walk driving in a car cozy on your couch in whatever position in whatever state just know I'm sending you love and really grateful to have you listening to the episode and sharing in this space today's show is all about codependency and we have been lucky enough to have an amazing guest on to talk about this subject Vanessa Bennett is a holistic psychotherapist and codependency expert. Her therapeutic approach integrates years of study and practice in depth Buddhist and yoga psychology. She's an author. She co-hosts the Cheaper Than Therapy podcasts and leads retreats and workshops dedicated to helping people break habits of self-abandonment and move towards choosing inner belonging. She's a mom, she's a friend, she's a partner, she's a businesswoman. She's just really an impressive person and you will hear this in this conversation. Um, To top it all off, she brings so much vulnerability to her work and to the show. Um, It was really great to hear about her own struggles with codependency and open up about mine. And I'm just hoping that you guys are as um, touched by the conversation as I was, even listening to it again, as it's been about, I don't know, six, seven weeks since the conversation took place. It was great to hear it again and have some takeaways that I didn't even notice the first time as as I actually took part in it before. So I'm very excited to be sharing this with you today. And as always, if you enjoy this conversation, if you enjoy this episode, please take the time to go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a written review. Head over to Spotify, give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you can give us some feedback, it would be wonderful. And Um, That really is what helps us to be able to get more episodes out to you guys and get in more people's ears and hopefully help others as we navigate all of these things that we are unlearning and hopefully relearning new and healthier ways to approach life. So with that said, here's the episode. Okay, well, first of all, we can drop in. How are you? I'm okay. It's been a week, but I'm okay. It's Friday. We've made it. I'm super jazzed to talk about codependency. I think I probably could win a codependency award. And so this, while I'm excited for everybody to hear about it, is going to be very fruitful for myself included. And so there's part of me that's like selfishly going to take notes. That's a very codependent thing for you to say, that you actually want an award for being the best codependent. I'm just saying. (laughs) See? I'm telling you. Really living up to that like perfectionist, need the validation kind of component to codependency, but... Vanessa, I'm at the acceptance phase right now in my codependency. Um, So I think probably just starting out for those who have not heard, and I don't know who hasn't heard, but in case people haven't, what codependency is, can you give us a little bit of a place to start from? Yeah. And you know, I actually think a lot of people haven't. And if they have, 
you know, I always, when I teach my live classes on codependency, I frequently talk about like the old guard, like the old way of thinking about codependency, right? Like we have to understand that as a culture, our understanding of codependency started in like the seventies and it really started in the AA world. And it was actually specifically, the term was specifically meant to describe the wives of alcoholic husbands. And so that's kind of the way we still think about it. And so a lot of people think like, oh, if I'm not in relationship with an addict, then I, I'm not a codependent, right? Um, and that's why I say it's the old guard because we've really come to understand it so much more and so much more in depth. Um, and so the easiest way to describe it and the way that I like to describe it to people is really just simply this. If you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. Mm. So essentially my emotional state is based on somebody else's emotional state or my kind of feeling of acceptance and wholeness is based outside of myself. It's based on somebody else. Even my sense of self is based on somebody else or, or just outside of self period. That, that brings up the um, phrase, happy wife, happy life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that. listen, this is why you said in the beginning, like I, I said in the retreat, we're all codependent. I mean, we are, it's the air we breathe. We are a codependent culture. I mean, I can't speak to other cultures, obviously. I can only speak to kind of Western culture, but that's how we're raised to be. Um, it's in every area of our life. It's in our parenting. It's in our school systems. It's in our religious dogma. It's in, I mean, it's everything. It's like, this is the, the quote unquote right way to be. <laughs> so how did you come upon this being like your area of study? What called you to it? Um, you know, when I first started going to my own therapy, I, I first started going to therapy when I was 25. And realized at the time I was in a relationship with somebody who was struggling with alcohol, although he would still probably never admit that, uh, and really started understanding what codependency was within that relationship. And then after doing kind of my own work and then starting to just teach and read more, and what happened was I was seeing so many clients and every one of them was in some way or another showing these quote unquote symptoms. And I started realizing that there were so many people who were checking all of these same exact boxes, even if they had no prior history or experience of, again, addiction in relationships, addiction in like the, the most basic sense, right? Like alcohol or drugs. And then I just started realizing, holy shit, this is everywhere. Um, and started digging in more to like the specific behavioral traits that I was continually seeing in clients and in myself and like connecting dots. And then once I started teaching in the lab, so in um, the beginning of the pandemic, right, my partner and I created this company called The Lab and really it's group it's group classes, right, run by therapists and coaches, you know, that's how we met. Yeah. Um, and I started teaching on codependency more selfishly to be like, I wanna dig into this more. It was my area of research. And then through that, I was like, oh my God, we're all in this together. <laughs> Everybody is freaking codependent. And it just kind of took a, on a life of its own. Yeah, no, I think I think that's so important to level set and have everybody understand that like this isn't something that maybe 50% of us struggle with. This is really an everybody thing. And one thing that came up when you were talking about addiction is that, you know, we we talk about addiction in terms of usually drugs and alcohol, but our culture is a culture of addiction and that goes from like, you know, our phones for instance, like how many people aren't addicted to their phones in one way or another. The way that we eat, the way that we engage with each other. So I can see how ubiquitous addiction is as well. It's just not in the terms that we normally look at it. And so 
as prevalent that as that is, codependency is equally prevalent. Right. And that's that's the important piece, right? I mean, I talk about the fact that codependents are addicts too. We're just addicted behaviorally versus substance. And, you know, I actually think I'm hoping that this new understanding and, and people are just kind of talking about it more. I hope that it really actually changes the way we look at addiction as a society because if we rather than say that person, there's something wrong with that person because they're addicted to alcohol or a drug substance or whatever, if we could actually just say, we're actually all addicts. Like, I, you know, I always say like, this person's Jack and Coke is my, my people pleasing. Mm. If we can start to look at addiction in that way and just realize that all addictions serve the same purpose, right? Which is to numb and to hide and to soothe anxieties. Then maybe we can start to address addiction just like universally versus like outing people and making some people seem bad because their addiction is uncomfortable for other people, right? Yeah. Um, so one of the first things that I think in shadow work that I'm recognizing seems to be the first door that people have to be willing to walk through is shame. And so what you're saying is really powerful because the thing that I noticed in my own work is like, oh, it wasn't until I had the gumption to be able to face that feeling that I got when I looked at myself honestly, um, that I was able to do anything about any piece of that thing. And so, you know, what you're talking about right now, we tend to have this hierarchy of sins that we put out there. And so drugs and alcohol and, you know, depending on who you are, pick your poison. But, um, I came from a religious background growing up and I'm definitely more spiritual than religious now, but I used to like wonder when in church they would talk about all sin being the same. And this kind of is when I, when I'm putting it on my spiritual sense now, I'm like, Oh, that's what the Bible was talking about. Everything is the same. We're all, we're all in the same playing field. And I think really spreading that message more and more helps all of us in facing our shame because we realize it's just in our nature versus something that we're like having to hide as a secret. Yeah. So well put. Yeah. So if somebody is, you know, becoming aware of codependency and trying to figure out, you know, what's the first step they're getting through the shame and the feelings, but they, they now know this. I know my friend and I always talk about how awareness is just the first step. Um, what's, what's the next step? Um, well, I think, you know, like you said, awareness, right. I always say that, um, awareness or kind of aha moments or these like epiphanies, that's really like 50% of the work. And then the other 50% is really like doing the thing. So the way I describe it is like doing the thing that makes you so uncomfortable. It literally makes you want to rip your skin off or it really just makes you want to just throw yourself out the next window available. Right. And, and that I say it that kind of dramatically for a reason. It's like, yeah, in a moment with, let's say my partner that I have a hurt feeling or they said something that bothered me right now, the way that my codependency manifests a million ways, but one of them is not rocking the boat, right? It's like keeping things smooth, shoving things down, not expressing my needs, not expressing things that are wrong with me in a relationship because that will rock the boat, right? And so if that is one of my things, then what needs to happen is that in a moment, a specific, I always call micro moment in my relationship where I have an awareness of this person said this thing or did this thing, it hurt my feelings, I have a need, I need to communicate it, I'm at a crossroads. I can either take a left and kind of do the thing I've always done, which is just to swallow it, pretend it's not there, grow resentment, nothing changes. Or I can take the right, which is do the thing that's so uncomfortable. I want to rip my skin off. And in that moment, or maybe later, it's okay that you have to process and maybe come back to it later. Say to that person, hey, you said this thing, it really hurt my feelings. Um, you know, I don't want to be talked to you that way in my relationship. And so 
I think sometimes people think that change is this like big, drastic thing and that, you know, it's these kind of like sweeping changes in our life. And as a therapist, I'm here to say, no, that's not how it works. It's micro moments. And over time, each one of those little micro moments builds up to changed behavior. It builds up to rewiring in the brain. It builds up to, you know, more resilience for shame and more resilience for the discomfort and anxiety that we do things like not rock the boat and how that soothes it. So yeah, I mean, that's a long way to way of saying it's like, what's that thing for you? What's that thing that makes you so freaking uncomfortable you want to just throw up? You know, and then can you in that moment breathe, find a sense of grounding, breathe into yourself and do the thing? It's the only way. Mm. I'm wondering um, for those people who are, you know, they know what those moments are. I definitely can think of moments when it's like you're not saying the thing and of the wounded feminine. Um, Is there any, are there any like hacks or tools that you have um, around being able to kind of build that muscle so that you have the strength and you're not like, traumatizing yourself as you jump out there. Yeah. I mean, look, it's going to be better for everybody if you're practicing with people who aren't going to just reinforce to you, right? What you're worried, what you're afraid of. So if, for example, speaking your truth um, with your parent was never safe growing up um, and you know exactly how your parent's going to respond, right? When you say to them, hey, you hurt my feelings when you said this, that probably isn't the first place to do it. I mean, eventually, yeah, that would be part of the work is to do it and be okay. Even if they say the thing that you know they're going to say and it's going to hurt your feelings, you know, they're not going to accept it. They're going to shut it down. All the same patterns that were there. Um, You know, I always suggest with a lot of clients, it's like do it with people who are loving and trusting first, maybe. Um, You know, so if you don't have friends in your life that you feel like you can be honest with, then that might be the first step. The first step might be to really do a relationship inventory and ask yourself, why do I have no one in my life that I feel like I can be 100% authentic with, number one? But number two, question that. Do you really? Or is that the story you're telling yourself? Have you ever even tried? You know, you might actually have people in your life that would really listen. You've just never given them the opportunity to show up and be a good friend. Yeah, no, that's that's an amazing point. And looking through... I guess my experience as I was growing that muscle, um, starting with like my best friend. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I, I realized that I've been friends with her for, you know, almost two decades and it wasn't about her. It was about this internal right. sense of myself and just ingrained fear that I had prior to the relationship um, where, you know, even when it comes to like, hey, if your best friend's in a bad mood or starts to to rant or, you know, is having that time where she's not having a good day or he's not having a good day. I, I started to notice within myself that like the thing that I wanted to do was meet them where they were, mm. you know, even if I was having a great day, trying to be mm-hmm, like relating mm-hmm. or fix it, which a lot of us do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seemed really innocuous, but I was like, oh, wait a minute. I can be sovereign and an individual. Yes. And, um, you know, and I had always seen myself as a very independent person. And so reconciling that I can be an independent, you know, strong person and be codependent yes. was was really important to be able to hold those two truths at once. Yeah. I mean, I think you said two really important things there. So the first point is, you know, I think for a lot of us, what it's bringing up for me is this person in my life that I considered my best friend for over 10 years. And the funny thing was, is that she was pretty much the last person I tried this stuff with. Um, and lo and behold, it was because she was actually the kind of person that couldn't hold it. Right. And thus we're no longer friends. 
Um, and, you know, I remember there were two big moments where I kind of brought up something and kind of confronted her and stood in my truth and told her what had happened that it hurt my feelings, whatever. And, you know, she kind of threw back in my face, like, you think I'm this kind of person. I can't believe you think I'm this kind of person who, let's say, wouldn't, you know, own it, apologize, blah, blah, blah. And then in the next breath, essentially cut me off and disappeared. Right. (laughs) And so I was like, well, I mean, (laughs) it's kind of exactly what you just showed me. Right. But the thing is, is that in that relationship, I had to build myself up to get there. I wasn't ready yet to face the fact that this person that I thought was my best friend actually wasn't going to be able to meet me there. And it's not to say anything Mm -hmm. bad about her. She's an amazing person. She just wasn't where I needed her to be, right, in my relational growth. Um, And so I practiced with other people. It wasn't my best friend, quote unquote, right? Um, And then the other thing that you, you kind of brought up that I think is important to say too, which I just actually totally lost. It just whoosh, right out my brain. You said you said two important things. I said something about holding, you know. I think oh, the holding- tension of the opposites, right? Yes. This is what I was going to say. So I think what a lot of people don't understand is when they hear codependency, they think of like needy, whiny, um, clingy, right? Um, anxiously attached. Like there's all of these like ideas that we have around codependency. And they're like, well, I'm the opposite. Like, I'm strong. I've got my shit together. I don't need anybody, which is really just hyper-independence, which essentially, in my experience, hyper-independence and codependence are two sides of the same coin. Mm. Okay. So hyper-independence and codependence, two sides. So does that connect to anxious and avoidant? You know, I know there's more than one kind of each attachment or is that so, I look, I, I've, I've said a million times that I don't think attachment styles and codependency can be connected. I think as humans, we really want things okay. to fit into a clear box. But as I'm saying that, I do think, and don't quote me on this, I would have to look into some research if it's even been done. I, I would say that somebody showing up in a more codependent way would probably lean more anxious. Somebody showing up in a more hyper-independent way would probably be more avoidant. But also in saying that, we have to remember that the research in attachment styles, especially more recently, you're not in a box. It's not like I am an avoidant attachment, like I have this label. It's like I lean more avoidant in these situations with these types of people in this type of relationship. And I lean more anxious potentially in this situation and with these people. So again, it's like codependent, hyper-independent, I embody both traits. Like I can see how I swing back and forth. And so again, I think as human beings, it's really natural for us to be like, I am this, here's my box. This makes sense to me, right? And we're so uncomfortable with ambiguity and we're so uncomfortable with like flow and we could do the whole feminist, you know, feminine, masculine quality saying and whatever, but we're uncomfortable with that as a society, as a Western society, we're very uncomfortable with ambiguity. And I think part of this work is actually to become more comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah, no, I can't agree more. And um, in my last relationship, my last long-term relationship, I found myself in the most anxious presentation of myself I'd ever been in. And since coming out of that, I'm leaning more avoidant, which yes. is which is something I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, and the contrast is really interesting. because But that feels like a healing technique to me. Like you're swinging to the other side, right? Which is another thing we do yeah. as humans. It's like, we swing to pendulum sides. Like we are black and white creatures. We like to be in the extremes. And there's something wrong with that. There's something about your psyche that probably actually had a very deep visceral response to being in the more anxiously attached and like kind of the grossness that it felt like when you came out of it. And so now you're swinging to the other side 
which is also not healthy. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you'll have a felt sense of how icky that feels too. And now with those two felt sense integrations, you'll be able to find your middle. Yeah, no. And I think it has to do also with like the person that you're with and who they are triggering, you know, that response to. Is it your mom more or your dad more? And you can have different wounds with different parents or aunts, uncles, caretakers, whatever. And so I noticed that as well. And I mean, I think stepping back and just being the observer first, you know, noticing and not identifying over identifying with it has been really helpful. You know, also seeing how this doesn't just apply to our romantic relationships. I would love to kind of take a tangent and talk to you about codependency and parenting, because I know you have Logan and I've got a 14 year old son, Israel. And so I've been noticing, I mean, I'm coming into this, you know, new age, teenage years where it's really time to like prepare him to go fly out of the nest. And seeing my own codependency and parenting has been really illuminating. I would love to dig in with you and just get your take on how you think codependency also shows up in parenting and things that we can do as parents to kind of, you know, set our kids up to be healthier than we were when we entered these relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big question only because I think to your point, it's like, it's going to show up differently for all of us. Um, I know for me, you know, I don't, I've seen a lot of parents how their codependency shows up as let's say like the helicopter parenting or let's say like really, really enmeshed hovering type of parenting, Um, you know, kind of keeping your kid in a bubble. That's not how it shows up for me. I'm actually really good at like letting her do her thing and like maybe doing things that other people would think like that's a little dangerous. And I'm like, she's good. Like let her fall. She'll be fine. You know, Um, lick that subway pole girl. It's good for your immune system. You know what I mean? Like I'm not crazy about that kind of stuff. Where I see it show up for me is I have a really hard time keeping my own separate emotional stability. So like when she's in a place of meltdown, which I have a toddler, so she's in that place frequently, um, I get really activated and I have a hard time um, not wanting to shut it down, right? And Hmm. when I'm in that state, oh boy, do I remind myself of my mother. Um, And I know where that came from, right? I can see it so clearly, Um, And so it is going to be about, to your point, observation, like how does it show up for you in particular? Where do you see yourself not being able to allow this tiny individual to be 150% their own individual? Where is that line for you where like you end and they begin emotionally, right? You're going to have to pay attention to that because again, each person's landscape for this stuff is different. And then that's where you have to put focus on, right? So for me, using the example of getting really overwhelmed and activated when she is, if I find myself, and look, I'm not perfect at this, right? Like I do get overwhelmed by it frequently, but if I am in a moment of clarity and I can catch it, um, I might ask for help. I might say to my partner, you know, I'm feeling, I need to go take care of myself. Like I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I'm about to yell at her or shut it down in some way, some shaming kind of way. Can you step in? And let me go take a walk or go in the other room and do some breathing, right? Um, the ideal <laughs> is that. The ideal is you notice it before it gets to the place of like full-on activation. Um, so I think it's that. I think it's really about us understanding that our children are not ours. They are not a piece of us, right? They are their own individual human. Um, and the more we kind of don't honor and respect their autonomy and their emotional boundaries – 
um, the more we are just breeding them to continue the cycle of codependency. Yeah, I had a really hard, um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had, I mean, I was sitting in my car bawling because my son is a really talented athlete. He, he plays football and he plays basketball and he tried out for this team. And I thought I understood what the schedule for this team was. And he ends up making the basketball team and he shared me, he shared with me the schedule and I saw the schedule and it was like between now and July, every weekend, except for three weekends, they had tournaments and they were between Maryland and Florida, like all over the place. And I broke out in tears. I felt a soul. No, like a soul. No. And I, and I have never said no to, you know, something, especially it's like the whole world is telling me this is what he needs to get in college. This is what he needs for his career. And all I could feel inside of me was one, this no that I probably wouldn't have even been in touch with before the last couple of years, because I was so used to just doing what everybody told me was the thing I was supposed to do. As a good And I was taught that you sacrifice (laughs) everything for your kids. If I don't, I'm selfish, I'm horrible. And so the first thing I noticed was like, my body felt free enough even to express this no. And so I just sat in the car like bawling. And then in the end, I told him no. And the thing that I realized was that there was a shift in my codependency because, you know, before I was so emotionally attached to like my son's emotions Mm -hmm. that if he was upset about it, then it immediately made me feel like I was a bad mom. But realizing at 14, there were some areas where he wasn't parented well by me because of that exact thing. He mm. didn't get some boundaries that he needed. And seeing that show up, you know, I kind of learned the hard way. One kid, you'll, you'll know too, we've got one and it's kind of a test drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so being a first, uh, I'm, I'm the oldest in my family. And, you know, I, I know that we're kind of like the, the testing ground. Um, but understanding, you know, the society is building up a lot of um, pictures of what it looks like to be a, a good parent, and they are codependent. And so it can feel really hard to step away from that when all we're seeing, like on social media, in movies, you know, books, whatever, and, and our friends is still that codependent archetype that's being, you know, lifted up. Um, I think that's beautiful. I, I love that example. And I think I want to say like brava for, for doing the thing that you know would upset him and, and being able to sit in that and say like, it's okay that he's upset. This is my truth. And, and this is what's best for me and for probably us, because that's what people don't understand, right? It's like, that wasn't you being selfish in that moment, because what would have happened? Like play that tape out. Had I said yes, even though every fiber of my being wanted to say no, I would have swallowed it. I would have done all these weekends. I would have made myself crazy. I would have been traveling. I would have been resentful as all hell. And it would have impacted my relationship with him. It would have impacted my relationship with everybody else, my stress level, how I can show up in my day-to-day life and relationships. No, thank you. No, thank you. Right? Like you have to be able to play that tape out and say, is that worth it? Because at this stage of my healing, hell no, that's not worth it anymore. And, and it took a lot of trust because, you know, the other tape and what I did hear from the coaches was I wasn't doing the right thing. This is going to hurt his career. And, you know, I had to be okay with that where before yes. I would have not been okay with that. Um, and the other piece was just like, our culture is so go, 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 produce, 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 wounded masculine. And I just realized, you know, this is the time where we get to teach our kids something different. If we want the future to look different, which we, hello, need it to, shit is hitting the fan everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um Instilling in them the idea of restoration, of rest, yes. of honoring yes. yourself and not 
having to constantly show up in these, you know, energetic deficits. And so talking to him about that, and he was upset, but it was hilarious because he was upset for like a day. And then he was like, hey, mom, can I play football locally? <laughs> I was like, yes. And yes you know when he's not going to be upset? When he has a weekend off and he can relax and read a book and watch some TV and chill and relax. I was just, I heard something the other day, and I'm going to see if I can find who it was, that was talking about how, um, you know, we talk about this concept of trauma and how it doesn't have to be capital T. It can be lowercase t trauma and it can be kind of like this long standing over time, right, types of trauma, Um, but how it all affects our nervous system in the same way um, and our development in the same way. And I read something or heard something maybe on like a parenting kind of professional Instagram, whatever, that said something around the lines of like one of the versions of quote unquote lowercase t trauma that especially in this last generation that we've seen is this go, go, like their their schedule is so booked that they actually don't have time for quiet and integration and nervous system reset. And how now that we're on the other side of a generation that was raised that way, because I think we were probably the first generation to actually live that experience, we're seeing now the impact of that, right? And so they were, this, this parenting expert was actually calling that a form of like long-term lowercase t trauma and like what it's doing to us developmentally as we turn into adults, right? So I think that's totally spot on. I mean, what are you what are you telling your kid when you tell your kid we're going to sign up for this thing where every freaking weekend for the next 6 months you have no downtime. And that's yeah. what you have to do to be successful in this life. And I mean it's pervasive. You know, he's the only one who isn't on this schedule and um it's really uncomfortable, but it's worth sitting in and um I don't know about you, but when I'm not in alignment, I have like this like low level anxiety I, I stay in. And so feeling that go away, you know, waking up the next day and even still feeling some of the guilt, but not feeling that like deep seated, you're, you're off course. Dread. Really nice. Um, dread. That's, yeah. what, that's a great, yeah. great term for it. And what you just said about, I think also going back to your example, um, I think for people who are out there like me and is a single parent, um, it can be really hard when we hear like, oh, I can talk to my partner and ask them to step in for me. But I think, you know, my reaction to when you first said that was like, oh, damn, I I wish I had a partner in parenting. But at the same time, I'm thinking you can also like stack up a list of people that are trusted people that you can call in because even for you, your partner's not always going to be there. You know, you might have to need a backup person. So for people who are listening, single parents alike, we can also have our own list of people who are there to step in when we get to that threshold that Vanessa is talking about. You can also do it with yourself. That's the thing too. It's like, she's not, I mean, look, she's at the age now where she's like flipping out and losing her shit. And I feel myself starting to lose my shit. There is nothing wrong with either picking her up and bringing her in her room and sitting her down to have her shit fit for a little while, making sure she's safe and then going and taking some breathing. Now that's not the same as like, go to your room. I can't stand you when you're like this and kind of banishing her and just, that's a whole other codependent kind of parenting way of being, right? There's okay with just like walking away and taking some breaths, you know, like shit. I remember my mom, like my brother used to be next level when it came to being a toddler. And I remember her like locking her ass in the bathroom and doing her deep breathing. And like at the time I remember being like, damn. And now I'm like, yeah, I see it. Like my mom was a single parent as well. And I'm like, I could totally understand sometimes just needing to go in the bathroom and lock yourself in there, you know, you got to take care of you. Um, Well, and if you go down, the whole ship goes down. 
you know, exactly. I think that that's really the most important part is like, you can't give from an empty cup. And there's so many people who are giving from an empty cup. And when and that it shows. happens, at least for me. <laughs> it shows. Well, and you know, I think that you would agree, energetics speak louder than words. 100%. And so one thing looking back at myself, it was really interesting because the one word that used to really trigger me was when someone would call me selfish. Oh, yeah. And totally. <laughs> How can you call me self, especially as a codependent person, I was willing to like give up everything to take care because that's where I got my value. And so when someone would call me selfish, I would become irate, you know, um, and I realized that it's because it, there was a lot of selfishness in how I was giving totally. because I was giving for something in return. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about maybe how we can identify whether or not we're giving from a space of like no strings attached versus where we might be giving, looking for something back. Yeah. I mean, you know, I talk about this idea a lot, right? Like the motivation behind the, the behavior, behind the action and getting really familiar with that. And that might not be something that people can do in the very beginning of their work. Like that takes a little bit of practice and skill and strengthening that ability to pay attention and observe. But I think, um, I'm trying to think of the easiest way to kind of break this down, at least in my own practice I think like you said, it's like, how do we how do we decide or determine if it's transactional giving, right? And that's really where the it goes from giving to caretaking or like caregiving to caretaking. Um, when it becomes, it's not actually about them, it's about me, right? So a question I like to ask myself is, um, if, if this thing that I'm doing or giving or saying, whatever this caretaking type behavior is, um, if it's rebuffed, how will I feel? So if that person dismisses it or says, I don't want that from you, how would that make me feel, right? And if that makes me feel dismissed, you know, invalidated, uh, like I'm not appreciated, most likely you're doing it for that transaction. You're doing it for that validation. You're doing it for this sense of like worthiness and this is what I bring to the relationship. This is my purpose, right? If you can really truthfully say to yourself, if this person said, no, thank you, and you would be totally okay with that, no, thank you, then it's probably caregiving. It's not quite that clean cut, but I do think that's a good place to start. Like really, truly ask yourself, if they said, no, thank you, what would your feeling around it be? That's super helpful um, because I think it can be difficult. And we also have, um, you know, we tell ourselves the stories we want to hear because I can, I can look and say like, no, 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 I'm without any sort of like measuring stick, I feel like my ego will immediately just tell me the story of like, no, you're, you're coming from a genuine place. If I ask myself that, um, but playing that scenario out and kind of feeling into that, I think I can get to a more true space within myself. <laughs> the ego is smart. Yeah, we all do. Right. And that's the thing too. I mean, I think circling back to almost like the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about like this playing the observer, you know, I like to call it like being an anthropologist of yourself. It's like, um, we're really good at keeping up with our bullshit, right? Like we're really good yeah. at convincing ourselves of the shit that we've always convinced ourselves of. And one of the ways that I approach teaching or working with clients, and this is not the approach for everybody, like not everybody resonates with my kind of style, but I know for me it was really helpful is like a very kind of like 
hold you by the shoulders and give you a good shake. Because in my experience, and, and Danae and I have actually had really interesting conversations about this, but in my experience, somebody who has more of the behavioral addiction, so that kind of codependency, coddling and being really soft and gentle about it is actually not helpful because we are so good at the stories that we tell ourselves and we will talk ourselves out of or into anything all day long, right? Like our ego, like you said, is very skilled, very skilled self-communicator. And so I've been told that I'm like the cold water and the face therapist. And it's like, I'm proud to carry that badge because I know that helped me, you know? And Danae will say that on the uh, more substance addiction side, it's actually usually the opposite. And that with people who are more substance addicted, they tend to actually have to be able to come to it on their own. They can't really have that shoulder shake kind of experience Um, for a lot of people that will actually just send them deeper into it. As I'm actually talking that out loud, I think it might be the first time that I've put a really interesting piece together here, which is like the behavioral codependent and the substance codependent, right? The two that make up that dynamic, that sticky dynamic. No wonder why we get into this like deadlock, can't break out of that cycle because the codependent's constantly trying to shake the addict into realization, (laughs) which doesn't work. It just sends them deeper into their shame. And then the person that's on the addict side is really kind of like, they're not clear. They're not able to be clear. They're not able to really be like specific and like, this is the issue and this is the problem, which is kind of what the codependent needs to hear to heal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm realizing there's actually this really interesting dynamic. No, I, and I'm seeing it play out too, because the thing that came up for me when you were saying that is like, oh, if you shake the substance, you know, the person who's addicted to substance, they're already dealing with shame that they're trying to numb. Yes. So you're activating the shame more, which makes them turn even further into the substance because they're trying to get away from that. And what I think from being on the other side of that with the behavioral piece is that we are not taking the time to sit with our feelings and being in our body. We're just reacting and projecting externally. And so we need to sit with the feelings and they they need more of the like safe space because they're already so entrenched in their right. feelings that they're trying to numb it. Right. So there's that opposite. Right. And um, if you, the behavioral codependent, take your hands off their shoulders and start focusing on yourself, the idea is that, I mean, it's not always guaranteed, but in, the research does show that when you, quote unquote, the codependent, start getting better, right, whatever that looks like for you, the chances of the addict getting better actually improve. Right. So again, you start to create the safe space. You start to take your hands off their shoulders. You start to pay attention to yourself. You start to give them the space to do the same. But the more you're on top of them, the more you're controlling, the more you're enabling and manipulating and all the lovely things that we do, the less likely they are to get better. Yeah. You know, this is such a departure from old school, like couples therapy, in my opinion, because it used to be very much, one, I'll say it was very much biased toward the like woman who's getting their husband or partner to come. You know what I mean? It's like, what have I done? And they, we didn't dig into a lot of, I guess it's interesting that we were coming from a patriarchal or still in a patriarchal society, but there was so much rejection of men and their feelings and all of these things. And what I see it's shifting in, in talking to people today, it seems like we're really starting to be pulled towards a balance. Um, after we kind of had, you know, the, the me too, where it seems like, women were kind of coming and showing up in this, um, the same energy that men were before, like 
anti-women or anti-man. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful because it seems like we're coming to more of a balance, um, at least in the small circles that I'm in. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even in my couples, you know, the, the number of couples that are coming in because the woman wants to are diminishing, right? A lot of times it's either the man that brings it up or it's both like it's amicable and that I've seen shift just in the last few years, I think, at least in my experience, my practice, but also the struggle that I'm still seeing show up in every single couple that I work with is this, I don't want to say unwillingness because maybe they eventually get there, but in the beginning, at least unwillingness to just look at yourself, stop pointing the finger at the other person, right? Like for some reason, when people come into individual therapy, they're so much more ripe to be able to have the therapist gently turn the mirror around and be like, you're the common denominator in this. (laughs) And in couples, it is so much harder to get each person individually to do that and take away that like finger pointing tendency. Um, And so that I still see really showing up. And so much of my work with couples is that it's like, we can't do any work at all until you're willing to do that work, which is turn the mirror on on yourself, own your own shit, stop pointing fingers. Right. Um, And God, that part alone could take us months to get to for some people. Mm. And that's tough for a lot of couples because they want to come in. And and well, families are actually the same way. When I work with families, at least I used to, it would be like, here's the identified patient. Here's my teenager that's acting out. Fix them. Give me a prescription on how to fix this other person, right? And it's it's very similar in couples too. No, because it's all a system that everybody's tied together and Mm -hmm. – that teenager might act completely different outside of that unit. So. Well, also that teenager is just showing what's going on in the family unit. I mean, they're just acting out the symptoms of the dysfunction at home, right? And ain't no parent want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, no, my son is, um, he's brutal, man. Yesterday I was, I took him to a hockey game and we were talking and we were with um, some clients and stuff. And he was just like, you're smiling a lot, mom. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yeah, you know, um, I, these are my clients. I really like them. And he was like, no, you're, you're smiling more than you want to be smiling. Aren't you? <laughs> oh shit! He looked right through you. And he, he was like, um, I, I hope I have a job where I don't have to do that. And I was just like, Holy crap, kid. You just <laughs> KO. <laughs> and I do enjoy my job, but he's right. You know, you were turned on a little bit too much, maybe. You know, and that's what happens to me. Like I'll get anxious and then that energy will make me like, um, I guess, try, you know, whatever that is, that trying. And he could see that and he has no qualms about just calling me out. Um, But I was really grateful for it because um, it it told me that I needed to take a few breaths. Totally. Do you know what I mean? And if he can see it, other people can see it. And I was getting out of my body and hadn't noticed. And I hadn't taken him to um, a client event with me at this job. And I was really grateful because I was just like, first of all, you're brutal. Second of all. I love that though. I love that you guys can have that kind of relationship because like, I don't think I would have ever had that kind of relationship with my mom, mostly because I think she was so defended and guarded against any perceived imperfection that there was no space for me to be honest with her, right? Without it turning into like shutdown. Um, and, And also because of that, I know that my delivery would not have been what his delivery was. It would have been a lot meaner. Um, and so it would have just perpetuated her defensiveness. Right. And so I, I actually think that that's a sign that you guys have a really solid relationship that he has the ability, like he was brutal, but it, it was, it wasn't mean. 
You know, yeah, no, it, it was clear. And even telling him that, even telling him he was savage, I was laughing as I yeah, said it, right. so he knew it was safe. Right. Um. Yeah. No, I think I think it's really um encouraging when they when they can be a mirror for us and we can and hear it hear because it. I mean that's maybe there's something in the Taurian space. You know, you're a Taurus, I'm a Taurus, and I really appreciate when somebody can call me on my shit in a loving way. Like there's nothing that I like more out of a friend. Please help me freaking grow. Yeah, in a loving like, way, but that's the that's the key component. And I've I have not met very many people in my life that can do it in a loving way that doesn't feel shameful. And in saying that, it might be because I don't know that I've surrounded myself with those kind of people until more recently in my life. Yeah. Like I actually don't usually do well with feedback. Like feedback actually puts me into my shame spiral. Um because I have such a perfectionist streak in me and tendency in me. Um, but also I wasn't really raised to be able to give or receive feedback either. So it, you know, and I'm learning now, like as an adult, as a woman who's almost 40 years old, I'm just now starting to grow the muscle of being able to sit in a tough relationship with say my partner and be able to hear what he's saying um, and separate out like you did this bad thing, bad in air quotes, you did this bad thing. doesn't mean that you're a bad person. Right. And so yeah. that to me has always meant the same thing. Like doing something bad or doing something wrong meant that I was bad. And so that's a new, a very new experience, probably only in the last like four or five years of being able to sit and know, not in the moment, but really <laughs> eventually know that it doesn't mean that I'm bad um, or failing in some way. What helped you get there to be able to kind of separate those two things? It was probably twofold. I think meeting my current partner now um, and and pretty early on us being able to have those conversations around, oh, holy shit, I'm realizing how connected those are. Like I'm not able to take feedback because it puts me into a shame spiral. And so him, I mean, also being a therapist, which does help, but he's got this, not always because he's not perfect, he's a human, but he does have this ability sometimes to really be able to like deliver feedback or criticism with this like metaphorical hand stroking my head being like, you're not bad. You're not bad. You're not bad. Right. Like this is just normal. This is what we do in relationships. Like we've got to be able to give each other feedback, you know? Um, and so I think it was 50% that, and then 50% me just strengthening it each time that happened. And it was a lot of body based practices. Like I know for me, when I get into that shame spiral is what I like to call it. Cause it's like, once you're on it, it's just like, you know, kind of takes over. Yeah. Um, I tend to dissociate. Like I am so out of my body. I get hot. I leave my body. I'm totally in my head. I'm cut off from the neck down. And in my head, it's this very kind of anxious, not anxious, rather avoidant um, script, which is like, fuck this, fuck him. This isn't going to work. Fuck this relationship. Clearly this isn't going to happen. Like what? I defend, 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 right? And once I'm in that space, like I'm not there anymore. I'm literally gone. I'm not in the conversation. I'm not in my body. So noticing when that heat starts to happen, noticing when that kind of talk track starts to kick in and getting into my body through different techniques. So one has been mantra, which is I actually steal it from him, which is the like, try to understand before being understood. And so I, I have this mantra in my head while I'm listening and I just repeat that over and over and over again. And then I'm not even joking, literally digging my nails into either like the chair or my leg, like something to remind myself that I'm in my body and to feel my body. And I have to do that. And I had to just keep paying attention to it. And it doesn't exactly bode well for like 
good conversation because in my head, I'm focused so much on staying in my body that sometimes I can't even articulate a response, but it's, it's like baby steps. Like that's what I've got to do. And, and I've, I've built a lot of resilience around it. I I don't think I dissociate as quickly as I used to. No, thank you so much for that vulnerability. I think hearing that you as somebody who focus, you know, in their profession is this work. And to hear that you even have to go through all of this body work, all of this um, baby steps is really, um, one, you know, it's humbling for me. um, But two, I think it really can help people level set and understand this is somebody who's made their life work off this type of thing. And so, of course, all of us are going to struggle when it comes to this. Um, The one thing that came up while you were talking you know, we talk about like not changing the other person, not um, relying on others to change for our reality to change. But I'm hearing in your relationship um, with John that you are finding this safe space. So how do we navigate the taking responsibility for ourselves, but also looking for the right thing in another partner? Because I think um, in conversations with friends recently, we're hearing so much about like, it all starts with you. And it Mm -hmm. does all start with, I really feel that. And it's so empowering. But then um, the one thing that we have had questions around is like, okay, so does that mean any relationship is meant to be? Any relationship can work. If one person is just able to get with themselves, does that mean everything is going to shift no matter who we're with? I mean, I would say my last relationship ending is probably the example of no, <laughs> that's not the case because <laughs> I was doing the work and I was, I was at least to my best ability at that time. And I was practicing working on myself and I was in Al-Anon and it didn't matter or, or the relationship with that friend that I was talking about earlier, right? Like yeah. there's only so much you can do. And yeah, look in the mirror first. That always should be step one, yeah, right? Yeah. Like what's my ownership in this? Because here's the thing, even if the relationship ends, you owning your part and working on your part, that's not for naught, right? Like that's going to benefit you personally. That's going to benefit any other relationship that you're in because of those are the yeah. skills and the, you know, the resiliency and all that stuff that we're talking about. So, um, It's not wasted effort, even if the relationship ends up ending, right? Um, So yeah, step one is turning it inward and saying, what can I own and what can I kind of do on my own that has something to do with them? And then we do have to continually do those relationship inventories, you know? Harriet Lerner talks a lot about, I love that she talks about like the jump to the cutoff. So she talks about how for a lot of us, we're so quick to jump to the cutoff and how that's actually not the work, right? Like that actually skips over what the work is, which is having those vulnerable conversations, even risking that person shunning you, ignoring you, you know, giving you the response that you're actually afraid of and saying, I don't feel safe enough to express X, Y, and Z. You know, I need you to be able to show up in this way. I need you to try to not get defensive, you know, even if you feel intact. Like, I want to be able to express myself, whatever that is for you in that relationship, and giving that person the opportunity to try to step up and and meet some of those needs, right? Um, And then how they respond to that is information for you. But you you know you don't get to jump to the cutoff without at first having those conversations and giving them yeah. the opportunity. Like I was saying with that friend, right? I got to that place. I tried twice to give that opportunity, and yeah, she did show me that she wasn't didn't have the capacity at least in that time. Yeah. And so then I made the decision. And guess what? On the other side of that, I feel okay with it. Of course, I miss her, and that hurts. But I feel okay with how I showed up. And the outcome that happened because I know that I own my shit and I did what felt true to me. And then I let her do what was going to be her thing. 
And so I don't feel any kind of pull or guilt or I'm like, did I not? Should I have? Should I said this? You know, because I feel good in my authenticity and how I showed up. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> this is our Zoom life, though. Amazing. He's being amazing. This is our Zoom life. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, what you were just saying makes me want to tell everybody, like, give yourself credit for the baby steps that you are making. Ooh. I really appreciate you coming and talking about all this today. I want to, you know, let the listeners find out how they can all find you and engage with you. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as Vanessa S. Bennett. Um, that's where I'm at the most. But I'm on TikTok as well as um, Dakota Yoda. <laughs> I do a lot of videos there, um, a lot more instructional videos. Um, you can also go to my website, which is going to be revamping soon. I've got a lot of new projects coming out in the next few months. I've got a book coming out actually with my partner. It's not me, it's you. Um, pre-sale is the first week of May, so that'll be huge. Uh, and yeah, so a lot of this stuff will be in there too. And a lot of very specific breakdowns on, you know, certain instances that this kind of stuff comes up and how to tackle it in the moment and things like that. So, um, I'm excited about that. So this is a big year. There'll be a lot of new stuff coming out. So just kind of check back in. Vanessa didn't mention also, but, uh, her and her partner have a podcast, which I love to listen to as well, which I think is also, it's not me, it's you, correct? It is. Yeah. So it's, it's technically like in his podcast. So if you want to listen to his, it's the angry therapist podcast. Um, and then usually every week, if not every two weeks, we'll put an episode out called it's not me, it's you kind of underneath the Sam umbrella. So if you find his podcast, you'll find that too. Um, and then, yeah, there's just, there's a bunch of other stuff. So the lab you mentioned, um, people can check that out as well. I'll give you a uh, discount code to put it in your write up for the people who want to check it out. Uh, for a discounted first month. Um, and I'm only like one instructor of 20, you know, it's kind of like the class pass of wellness. So come for one, stay for all, if you will. But that's been amazing, powerful, transformational experience, I think, for so many, myself included. And it came at such an important time, you know, COVID had hit us, everybody was going into isolation and mm -hmm. really just gave us community at a time where so many people were feeling alone. So thank you for that work. Yeah. I really appreciate you making time. I know it's not easy. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Of course. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you know when a new episode airs. Also, feel free to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. For show feedback and requests, reach out to us at speakup at the-unlearning.com. You can also follow us at the.unlearning.podcast on Instagram or check out the show blog at the-unlearning.com.